Psalm 119. Tonight's going to be a little different than normal um, and might come across a little more like an exposition than we're typically used to on Sunday evenings. But we'll get to the confession. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, make use of this time. Holy Spirit, please come and help us to understand what has been written. And I pray that you would give us just a sense of your goodness, O oh God. We see it every day all around us and we miss it. Forgive us of our sin, of being so caught up in our own lives and our own world and the things that we have going on that we don't even see your goodness. And very often because we don't believe that you're good, we also don't take time to dive into your truth. The psalmist is very clear, you are good and do good. Teach us your statutes, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last Lord's Day morning, I've done this many times before, but that's the most recent. I made reference to Psalm 19. And this 19th Psalm, I said, presents to us what we might call the two books of God's divine revelation, ironically enough, contained in written revelation. But it opens up and unpacks for us the two books of divine revelation. The first book in verses 1 through 6 deal with what we call general revelation, the book of nature, where the, what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1 when he says, what can be known about God can clearly be seen through what God has created. Through creation, we can learn about the eternal power and divine nature of our God. He's revealed Himself. And so all men are without excuse because He's revealed Himself. They're without excuse as to their responsibility. The second book of that psalm, Psalm or verses 7 to 14, then deal with what we would consider the book of Scripture, the book of, of written revelation. God has especially revealed Himself in words to men which are recorded in Scripture, in the Bible. <clears throat> Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible and it opens up and delves even more deeply into that second book of divine revelation or the, the book of special revelation that we would now call Scripture. 
Now, the reason I started with Psalm 19 and we're reading from Psalm 119 is hopefully if you had never made that connection before, that might help you to remember. Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 both give us uh, very detailed expressions of God's revelation of Himself. Psalm 119 is a literary masterpiece all about the written revelation of God to men. It's divided into 22 parts and every section is headed by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And within that section, every stanza begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, you're not going to see that in English, obviously, but that's how it's written. It begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Philip Henry, father of Matthew Henry, we all know Matthew Henry's commentary. Philip Henry encouraged his children to take a verse of this psalm every day of the year and, and meditate upon it and commit it to memory. Thus, going through the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, twice a year and having meditated on all of this revelation that deals with revelation, that teaches us about the revelation of God. And there's actually a record of one of his daughters doing that and committing, working to commit the entire psalm to memory. So it's well worth your time to study Psalm 119, but what we're going to look at is verse 68 of Psalm 119. Within this chapter dealing all uh, dealing with and all about the revelation of God to men the psalmist says in verse 68 you are good and do good teach me your statutes now I want to open up this verse under three headings the nature of God number one number two the acts of God and number three the revelation of God of God the nature of God the acts of God and the revelation of God. And hopefully, the plan is, in expounding upon this verse, we'll actually uh, get to these next two attributes that are in our confession. And I want to read the chapter that we're studying again from the very beginning. And I hope you'll do this often and just meditate upon these attributes of God. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, and then here will be our topic for this evening, abundant in goodness and truth. Heading number one then from Psalm 119 and verse 68, the nature of God. The nature of God. The psalmist says, you are good. Now we, if we needed to, we can look back to verse 65 and see that he is addressing the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel, 
You, Lord, are good. And the word here, good, is the word that would generally be used for goodness, moral excellence. He's saying you are the God of all virtue, all excellence, and all perfection. And notice he does not start with what God does. When we think of goodness, and I do believe that this is probably what the confession is addressing, when we think of goodness, we think of something happening, a good event, a good word, a good thought. But that's not the way the psalmist begins. He begins with the nature of God, not with what God does, but what God is. You are good. It's who He is. It is of the very essence of God to be good. And the confession, we confess as a church that God is abundant in goodness. That is, He is overflowing in goodness. God spills out in moral excellence. He bubbles over in perfect virtue. The theological language for this attribute obviously would be the goodness of God. God is good. It's not very difficult to understand, but it, we could spend our lives just in this. Now, to say that God is good, again, we're not going immediately to just the things He does or the things He gives. We're starting first with who He is. And so to say that God is good is to say that He answers in every respect in every way and at every point to the ideal. And again, even that sounds sort of circular because, well, who's the ideal established by? It would have to be established by God Himself. If we had to come up with the ideal God, we could not come up with a God this good. But God is... He answers in every respect, in every way, at every point to the ideal. And this idea of God's goodness has historically been addressed under two subcategories, the absolute goodness of God and the relative goodness of God. So first, the absolute goodness of God. God is good. He's good by nature. He's good because of who He is. Because He is God, He is good. Even if there were never another creature in the universe to display His goodness or to, to act out in a goodness or give a good gift, even if that were never the case, God in Himself would still be good. From ever, everlasting to everlasting, God is good. Not owing to any action performed by Him. He's just good. It's just simply His goodness. Because this goodness is who God is, then like all of the other attributes, it must coincide with and flavor every other attribute. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he wanted to see the, the full manifestation of all of the divine excellence and perfections. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So all of the divine perfection there is summed up in God's goodness. And every attribute of God's is answerable to and conformable to perfect, virtuous goodness. And so when we consider God's wisdom, we know that God knows every fact 
Everything that there is to possibly be known, God knows it. Every, every truth, every fact, every detail, every event, every moment, every circumstance, He knows all of it. It's all laid out in front of Him. And He orchestrates providentially every single event for His own purpose and pleasure. Now think about how terrifying that thought would be if God were not good. But because He's good and His wisdom is grounds for us to worship. God is the source of all power. There's nothing God cannot do. Nothing holds Him back. Nothing stops Him. Nothing moves Him forward or backward. And in that, He's good. How terrifying would it be if, if He were all-powerful and yet not good? But He is good. We talked one week about the what I call the majestic holiness of God. This awful terror of God that strikes fear in the hearts of men. It put Ezekiel on his face four times. John fell at his feet as though dead, and yet he's good. Even there, he's good. The consuming fire who is our God is good. He's a good consuming fire. And his justice... His unflinching, unwavering determination to execute perfect justice in response to every deviation from his own perfection. He's still good. Even in that, is good. His justice is good. How terrifying would it be if he had all of these other attributes and yet in his justice, just in his justice, he weren't good. We know that God is infinite. Unlimited, unbound by both time and space. And so therefore His goodness is also unlimited. He is the God of boundless goodness. There's nowhere you can go in all of the universe where you can hide from the presence of God's goodness. It's there. His goodness is there. God is immutable. God does not have the ability to change. And thus His goodness never changes. He cannot be any more good than He is. And He will never be any less good than He's ever been. It would be wonderful news that God is good, but if He were mutable, if He could change, then we wouldn't, it wouldn't be good news. But the fact that He is immutable and He is good means that we can always trust that He is good. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Therefore, He is eternally good. There's never a time when God began to be good. And there will never be a time in all of eternity as we go into glory for billions and billions of years, He will never cease to be good. God is independent. God needs nothing. He receives nothing. He only gives. And therefore, His goodness is independent. He's not good because there's some unspoken expectation outside of Himself. And He looks at the standard and says, Well, if that's good, then I must aspire to that standard. That's not God's goodness. He is in Himself and of Himself, independent of all else, the manifestation of perfect ideal virtue. God is good. Because God is in Himself goodness, then anything and everything that we might want to call good 
whether it's an act or it's a, a pursuit we have or a, a hobby, a goal in life, it can only rightly be considered good in as much as it conforms to God. That's what godliness is. When we live in godliness, what we're saying is my life is in conformity to God. Goodness. And it can only be called good if it is in conformity to God. It is good for us to pursue God, to know God, to live in conformity to God because God is good. God is the supreme standard of goodness. Amen. Only in as much as we have drawn closer to God in any particular deed can we then say it was good. And anything, this is important, anything that God does to us to draw us closer to Him is by definition good. Psalm 86, 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good. Now listen to this from Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. Here the psalmist sort of compares what the world would consider good to what we as believers know is the true good. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The world can have all of their grain and all of their wine, and they're going to continuously search for some good. The only good that the world knows is when it's given to them in some sort of temporal, sensual gift of goodness, a, a good time, a, a, a new car, a new outfit, whatever the, whatever the world chases after, that's where they find goodness. But the believer says, you are my good. You're my good. Show me your face. That's my good. God himself is the good that we seek. In contrast with all earthly bounty, God is our good. God is good. And this is who he is. God is all good and only good. All that we might could say about God, if it is to be true, is only perfectly, eternally good. There's nothing in God that we could ever correctly describe as less than perfectly good. None of His attributes are a mixture of good and less than good. Not good and bad, that's obvious, but not even good and less than good. It's all perfectly, eternally, wholly good. Now we, men, might be good or do good from time to time. We might carry out a good deed, but only God can be called good. This is why Jesus would say there is none good but God. And the psalmist over and over throughout the psalms, we read, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. What would incline God the Father in eternity past to convene with His Son and to choose a people from every nation under heaven to be redeemed and reconciled unto Himself and given to His Son as a gift, except that God the Father is good. He's a good Father. What would incline the Son to volunteer, to take upon Himself the form of a servant to live and die in the room and in the stead of sinners, to undertake to be our surety, to bring us to himself, except 
that He's good. God the Son is good. What could possibly incline the Holy Spirit to labor and tarry with men, bringing conviction, sanctification, comfort, teaching us from the Word of God, giving illumination to beggarly sinners like us, except to say the Holy Spirit's good. Every person of the Trinity is good. God is good. John Gill says, Our Jehovah, the true God, is superlatively good. Good in the highest degree, good beyond all conception and expression. God is good. If I had a couple minutes, I would try to explain to you how good God is. But I can't. Secondly, from this text, we then see the acts of God. The nature of God, God is good. The acts of God, God, He says, you are good and do good. It can only be true that since God is only, ever, always, eternally good, then all that He does is also good. It flows out of His essential goodness. He does good. All that He does, here's, here's a Latin phrase for you, ad extra, out of Himself. All that comes out of Him is in conformity with all that is in Him. And if all that is in Him is good, then all that comes out of Him is good. You are good and you do good. This is our God. And this leads to the second category of God's goodness, which we would, we would call the relative goodness of God, God's goodness toward others. I do think this is in focus in the confession when it says that He is abundant in goodness. It, it comes out. It overflows from Him. Now here, many writers would say that God's goodness as it comes toward the creature is or seems to sum up and encompass every other moral and ethical attribute. Now we typically place the holiness of God at the very top if, if we wanted to call that a moral attribute, which we don't have to if we, we use the majestic holiness. But many writers would put God's goodness at the top of that moral, ethical list of, of God's moral attributes. So when we study the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, all of these flow to us because God is good. God is long-suffering with us. We saw last week, why? Because He's good. God's the fountainhead and the source of all good. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights. If it is good, conformity to God Himself, if it is good, it's from God. And if it is from God, it is good. Here's another definition from Robert Shaw. The property, he's, this is the, he's defining God's goodness. That property in the divine being which disposes Him to communicate happiness to His creatures as far as is consistent with His other Perfections. In other words, God communicates happiness to us, but He's not going to do that at the cost of His justice. He's not going to do that at the cost of His holiness. He's not going to do that at the cost of His eternal decree. But as far as it aligns with every other attribute of God, God communicates happiness to His creatures. Since God is good and He is the definition and quintessential display of goodness, then all that God does is agreeable to Himself and is therefore good. So if God has done it in the past, it is good. 
If there is any true good in anything, all that we've done here today, if there's any good from it, if any good ever comes from it, it's from God, not from us. Everything God does is completely and totally free of all that is less than good. Any, any less than good, these are my hyphenated words, less than good, or non-good in anything, in any creature, is simply the absence or lack of conformity to the goodness of God. We bring the non-goodness. Creatures bring the less than good. All that God brings to the table is goodness. God is good. God does good. His essence overflows in kindness towards creatures. And this disposes him to act in accord with the best interest of the creature. Now think with me here. What is the best interest of the creature? What is the, the greatest and chief good of the creature if not God? God is goodness. God is good. Our best interest our chief and greatest good is to know God, to be known by God. That's the, the weight of that promise. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be God to you. Do you understand? I will be God to you. He doesn't say I'm going to be judge to you. I'm going to be uh, bailiff to you. I'm going to be God to you. He promises that to the people. This is our chief good. When we're in glory, He will be God to us. To be known by Him, to love Him, and to be loved by Him. To be like Him in every way that is commensurate to our creaturely nature. In, in other words, to be like God as much as a creature can be like God, that's our best good. That's our chief interest. That's our greatest goal. So how is it that a good God can be known by the creature. We don't have a stepladder tall enough to get up to Him, to peek over and to see His goodness, to find Him. So how can the creature achieve the best interest of the creature, arrive at that greatest good, unless God reveals Himself to us? God in His goodness must reveal himself to us. If that's our chief interest, and his goodness leads him to work for our chief interest, then he must reveal himself to us. And that leads us to the third heading of this text, the revelation of God. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The statutes here are the prescriptions, the commands, the dictates of God and his law. In Psalm 119, you'll see a, a, a litany of words that are all synonymous. Law, precepts, word, teachings, promises. All of these things we would sum up as direct divine revelation from God, God's written word. For the psalmist, it was not a 66-book canon, but for us it is. So when we come to Psalm 119 and I read, teach me your statutes, I don't have to stop in Exodus 20. I can keep reading. When I read at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I can start in Exodus 20, but I can go to Ephesians 1. When I read... 
Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. How am I going to know the ways of God unless I read the revelation of God? You see, all of these words are, are just the revelation of God. This, Psalm 119, is all about the book, the scriptures. And so the psalmist is saying here, God, you are good in your nature. And because you're good in your nature, you do good. All that you ever do is good. And because all that you ever do is good, you're working for the best interest of men, and you're working for my best interest, so direct me, guide me, teach me into your revealed word. Show me yourself. And that's how I'm making the connection to the next phrase in the confession that God is not only abundant in goodness, but He's abundant in truth. Truth. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Thy word is truth. God is good. God does good. All that God does is good. Therefore, all of God's self-revelation in His Word is in perfect harmony with Himself. His Word never contradicts God. This is why He can say, I've exalted above all things my name and my Word. Now, in theological terms, this idea of the truthfulness of God, you might see it phrased as the veracity, <coughs> veracity of God. Veracity simply means conformity to reality. That's truthful. It conforms to reality. Very often when we think of truth, we assume that it's always positive. Tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. But truth by itself, just truth, is not positive or negative. It's neutral. If the truth comes out that someone committed murder, that's not a positive thing to find out, but it is conformable to reality if they committed the crime. It is truth. So truth is that which conforms to the reality of things, whether good or bad. Harmony with reality is truth. God conforms to the reality of Himself in all that He does. God is good. God does good. Therefore, God is truth. God is harmony with Himself. So our belief, when we say that we believe in the inerrancy and in the infallibility and the sufficiency of the truth of God in the 66 books of the Bible... We say that because we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and, in, and the sufficiency of God. Because God is truth, God's Word is truth. This is the veracity of God, the truthfulness of God. There's nothing in God that does not conform to God. There's no disagreement between God's essence and his self-conception or self-awareness. I look, Christy and I were talking about this. We all have a perception of ourselves. We think about ourselves. Maybe we look in the mirror and we, we will kind of tweak how we're standing to try to make what we're seeing different. We think about ourselves. Maybe our esteem is too high. We think too highly of ourselves. 
we have a false perception. Maybe our, our perception of ourselves is too low. We think too lowly of ourselves. That's not our problem, by the way. But perhaps we do. We have an incorrect thought about ourselves, a self-conception. It's off. There's always a, a, a disconnect between what we perceive in ourselves and what is true. It is not so with God. There is no perversion in God. There is no incongruity in His being and His will and His actions. It's all in perfect harmony. No means by which God would ever reveal Himself is in any way at odds with who He is in Himself. All that God thinks, all that God wills, all that God does is in perfect harmony with all that God is. Or, to put it more simply, God is truth. No, it's very sim similar to the simplicity of God. All that He is, is truth, harmony. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's not possible for Him to deny Himself to do anything that is incongruous with God. He is truth. Now, in light of that, and here we're dealing with what God has said. Teach me your statutes. Give to me your word, your self-revelation. God does not simply speak to show us who He is. God speaking, if you want to hyphenate that, you can to keep it together. God speaking is who He is. God speaking is God. God is the perfect divine revelation of Himself through the Word. In the beginning was the Word, self-revelation, speech. It was there, and that was Him. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. God would not be God without the Word proceeding forth from Him. Self-revelation. And that self-revelation can only ever be in harmony with the divine essence. It's perfect. I look in the mirror, perhaps I have the best mirror and I can see myself perfectly, but I'm still not seeing the perfect me because it's just an image. It's not me. But for God, He has a perfect conception of Himself, so perfect that it actually stands forth. It is His self-revelation. It is the Word. That's why Jesus could say, I am the truth. That's me. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. I am the way, the truth. This is who He is. God speaking is God. So when the psalmist says, you are good and do good, teach me your statutes, he could have just as easily said, you're good in your nature. Everything you do is good. Now show me more of yourself. Reveal to me more of who you are. And just like the goodness of God, this veracity bubbles over in outward revelation. God is abundant in truth. He overflows in truth concerning Himself. He speaks the truth. Always. God is always speaking truth. If God stops speaking, the Word ceases to exist. He's not God. He's always revealing. Isaiah 45 and verse 19, he says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. 
And so when we consider this overflowing of truth and how it might look, God analyzes according to the truth. So when we see in the Proverbs, there's this detailed breaking down of many societal ills, exposing them for what they are, even though sometimes we sort of naturally want to disagree, his analysis is correct. It's right. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. There are many who would say, well, I don't know. It seems like if you just come a different route, just do it a different way. Maybe, maybe try talking to them a little bit first. Maybe try, try removing them from the situation, putting them here, putting them there, giving them something else to do. No, 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 no. God said the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. And while men may balk at that, God, his analysis is correct. If you want to see folly driven far away, you're going to have to get the rod to drive it from them. His analysis is correct. It's always according to truth. God evaluates according to the truth. And so when Scripture reveals to us the nature of human condition in sin, the sinfulness of our sin, the perfections of God, the sufficiency of Christ as Savior, we can trust God's revelation, God's evaluation is according to truth. If God says, my son is a sufficient Savior, we have no reason to doubt that. If God says, your sin, one single sin, is so vile to me that I must rid the universe of it in eternal hell, we might think, well, I don't, think it, I don't feel like it's that bad. Your evaluation is off. God evaluates according to truth. God judges according to truth. And so the law of God might expose an action, a habit, or a mannerism that you've developed. And according to the law of God, it's sinful. Now other men may come up and they may say, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't really feel like the indictment is, I feel like it's too strict. God's word judges according to to truth. If God says it's sin, it's sin. God also preserves the truth. God has given His Spirit to the church to preserve the written Word of God in all ages. That shows us that God cares about the truth. He wants it preserved. God guards against all non-truth. When the Scriptures say that an elder must not only be able to teach sound doctrine, but rebuke those who contradict it, what we learn is God cares and desires that His church be protected from all non-truth. All non-truth is not only unhelpful, it's contrary to God who is truth. So if we've got literature, we've got books, and we would say, well, I mean, it's not, it's not heresy, but it's just sort of you're putting a little twist on it. Is it truth? Well, no, God hates it. It's non-truth. He wants us to guard against all non-truth. The church is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, not half-truths, partial truths, a little bit of truths. We hold up the truth. God's truth always confronts and exposes all non-truth. This is one of the many offenses of the gospel. 
The gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, it exposes the false notions of men. It exposes false conceptions of God. It exposes all of the vain hopes that men have of self-salvation. It, it makes non-truth begin to rise to the surface and men don't like to have their non-truth exposed. If they believe in a God that is all love and no justice and you preach to them a God of justice, they're going to be upset. It's going to contradict. It's going to expose, bring to light. If you're preaching to men that think they can save themselves, that they have no righteousness in themselves, that's going to spotlight their inability to be righteous and it's going to expose non-truth because God is Truth. God labors to bring to light truth and expose error. And that's why he tells his church that we are to have no part in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but what? Expose them. Bring them out. Let everyone see them so that we can say, that is darkness. And we have no part in that. God said to Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. What I am, he's saying, is exactly synonymous and concurrent with what I am. I am what I am. Truth. Coherence. Perfect coherence. With men, we constantly work and try to convince others and convince ourselves that we are what we are in reality or what we in reality are not. That's our, our whole lives are spent doing that. With God, it is not so. What God is, God is. He has never put on a front. He's never put on a, a face. He's never tried to hide or, or conceal what He was. He is who He is. God is truth. God is abundant in truth. In no way is God ever wrong, off-color, or deceptive. God, God's truth never contains any admixture of non-truth. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. It is in our best interest to receive the truth from God because the truth always leads to God. And because God is abundant in goodness, He must also be abundant in truth, which leads to His goodness. You are good and do good, Teach me your statutes. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Now let's apply these things. Number one, God is good. Trust Him to do good. Rest in His goodness, even when it is difficult to rest in His goodness. Seeing God's goodness and trusting God's goodness are not the same thing all the time. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes we can't see how it could be good. How could this possibly be good? If God is good, it can't possibly not be good. God could have created the universe in such a way that every creature spent every waking moment in suffering and pain until it died. He would be no less God or no more God, but He didn't do that. He gave us noses so that we could smell sweet smells, and we smell a sweet smell, and we like it, we delight. He gave us ears so that we can hear beautiful sounds like music and 
birds, our children laughing. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. He gave us taste buds. When we eat food, you know, we, do, we just have to get it in, just get the nutrients. But he gave us taste buds so that not only could we eat, but we could enjoy it. Chocolate and steak. He just says, you know, why not make them enjoy it? Why not give them the opportunity to delight in it? Because he's good. He gave us nerves on our skin. And we get to feel a breeze or the summer sun. He didn't have to make that pleasurable, but he did. He gave us eyes so that we could behold beauty in the sunset or the clouds or whatever it might be. Because he's good. He didn't have to do that. But because he's good and he labors for the happiness of creatures, he makes it that way. Even animals have taste buds where they enjoy and they like food. Why? Because he's good. We've talked about mosquitoes before. Why mosquitoes? I bet a mosquito loves sucking my blood. I bet he loves it to death. I don't know why. They're, they're there. I don't know why they exist. But I know God's good and I bet he loves it to death. Because he's good. He's always good. So trust him to do good. If he would be good to animals, why would he not be good to his creatures in general and even more specifically to his people who he's, who he's saved? He's always good. In every instance, God is good. Trust him to be good. Number two, if we can trust God to do good, or maybe I should phrase that, since we can trust God to do good. It's not hypothetical. Since we can trust God to do good, should we not trust His Word to be good? We talked talk this morning about, you know, why, what reasons we might have for not picking up the Scriptures and reading. A lot of times we avoid God's Word or maybe specific parts of God's Word because of the difficulties it presents to our minds. We might set it down and think, I just, I just can't right now. I just I can't do it right now. We avoid difficult doctrines. Or we might replace time in the Word with something else because of the difficulties, the challenges, maybe even the conviction that it's going to bring when we open it up, and so we avoid it. But God's Word is truth, and God's Word is good, so it's always good for you, always. It is always light for the soul. It's always food for a hungry heart. You're never going to spend time in God's Word and close it and say, you know what, that was a waste of my time. I wish I hadn't done it. Never. You'll never regret it. It's good because it's from God who is the source and fountainhead of goodness and truth. And lastly... Since God's Word is good and truthful, should we not seek to be taught, taught by it or from it? This is the logic of the psalmist. This is the point. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I see what I see in you. And I see what you're doing. Now teach me. I want to be with you and get from you what you are. God is good. God is my greatest good. God is my chief good. God always only does good. God's word is from God and therefore good. God's word is truth because God is truth. And so my greatest good, the best thing for me, is at least aided 
by time in God's Word. This is not all that there is, but this is a part of what there is. God's Word will get you your greatest good. In Psalm 25, he says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He's saying, I'm willing to wait here and, and take all the time that it needs if it means that at the end you will have taught me, you will have led me. God is abundant in goodness and truth. Let's stand and I'll close with a word of prayer and then we'll sing the doxology before we leave. Father, you are good. And you do good. Teach me your statutes. Teach us your statutes. Give us a keen awareness and a sensitivity to your goodness. Lord, we, I believe we would all confess that you are good. And very often we live, even if it's in the recesses of, the, of our minds, we live with this, this fear that maybe you won't be good. If we follow your, follow your commands, it, it might not lead to good. It might bring about something bad. Lord, you're good. You are good and you do good. Teach us your statutes. Teach us how we might live. Go with us from here and help us to see your goodness. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.